Speaking of a lot of bad decisions, uh, we are going to talk about that today in our series, Is the Old Testament Obsolete? And uh, some of you really believe in uh, health and all of that. I, I do too. I just don't do it. I believe in it. You know, I know it's right. I know it's good to eat healthy, to exercise and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's the goal, right? Um, so there are a lot of things though in life that we find that uh, we are making poor decisions or we have made poor decisions. And, and I think my goal in life is to learn from other, others' mistakes, to look to scripture and to look to uh, what people have done poorly in life and then resolve to not make that mistake. And I know sometimes it's hard when you're in the middle of a problem, situation, an issue. We fall back into poor decisions. We fall back into our flesh nature and our old nature. We're going to see that today with a man named Lot. A lot of bad decisions. So what I'd like to do first, though, is tell you that the Word of God, the Bible, in both divisions, what we call the Old and New Testament, is for today. The New Testament obviously is. It is the story of the, of the Christ coming. When I say story, I mean the true story, the, the narrative of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And then we have the history of the early church and the letters from the apostles to the churches. And from all of those things, we can learn and grow. And we know that's, that's for today. But is the Older Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, is that also relevant? Is it important? Should we even spend any time there as Christians? And I say 100% absolutely yes, because it's foundational. It's, it'd be silly to try to build the roof of the house first, right? You need to build the foundation first. You need to start at the bottom, and that's why I think we need to know what this has to say. But things do go obsolete. Do I have a kid in the house that would help me illustrate this? Come on up, young man. Yep, right there. Come on up. We have here something that is obsolete, although I think some of you still have this in your house. I bet you some of you still use it. Are you ready? Hang on to that. Just kind of keep it near your mouth. Ready, set, tell me what this is. A cassette tape. A cassette tape, a little more specific. What kind of cassette tape? A VCR. It is a VCR. How many of you have a VCR at home? Raise your hand. I know lots of you do. You just dated yourself. Uh, do you have one at home? No. 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 He's like, no. Um, so how many of you still use your VHS? VCR. A few of you do. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I mean, this is, this is my era. This is my generation. So this is a VHS tape. And inside here, this is actually one of our early in grace episodes where it's called creation versus evolution. Pastor James A. Scudder filmed at Spring Lab in Northern Minnesota in 1996. And so what I love most about these is that sound that they make when you're fast-forwarding or rewinding. Isn't that the best sound in the world? I never heard it. You've never heard that? Well, no. you just did. I just made the sound. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, whatever. That sounded like a loon, which is actually on the front cover of this. You ever heard a loon? Doesn't that sound like... Kind of does, right? Yeah. 
So let me tell you a quick story. When I was in high school, we started a basketball team. Somebody thought it'd be a great idea to start videotaping our basketball games, which was a great idea until we had to watch how bad we were. Because in our mind, we were pretty good. And then the coach would sit us down and pop in the video and we'd sit back and we're all excited and we're watching like, what game were you filming? This was, that wasn't us. And I had to steal the ball from Pastor Paul a few times just to get the ball. But um, We had a man in the church, Bob Vacco, that comes in. He goes, I've, I just bought a, a VHS camera. And uh, it, it, it wasn't like, you know, right now, what do we have? Just a cell phone. It was like a big camera, had a cord, and it came down to a, a, a recorder, which was like three times the size of that. And he had all this, it looked like, uh, like ESPN had arrived with all this stuff. And man, it was cool. It was cool. But that was the first time I remember you could actually record on tape. You know, before that, it was like uh, film, film, motion film cameras. Uh, but uh, boy, things have evolved, haven't they, as far as technology? Okay, so you are going to get some money for helping me out here. Who is that? Andrew Jackson. Of course you know that, Andrew Jackson. Thank you. Let's give him a hand. Spend that quickly before it goes obsolete. Amen. Things are going obsolete fast, aren't they? How do we know the Bible will never go obsolete? Well, the Bible itself tells us in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand, what? Forever. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? But since we call the Old Testament old, does that mean it doesn't have any relevance to my life today? There are hundreds of references about the Older Testament in the New Testament. Here's an example. Matthew 1.1 says, the very first verse, by the way, of the New Testament, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. We wouldn't know David or Abraham unless we had the Old Testament, would we? Therefore, it is foundational. It is upon that we, we can learn more and more about the age that we live in today. And so who was Abraham? Who is Abraham? Last time, we learned that God chose Abram to bring forth the Savior. So this is a pretty important man. And we did see in the genealogy that we read here in Matthew 1.1 that he was, Jesus, the, the Savior, was a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is Jewish. And, and I just choose to, to love the Jewish people and to support them and to stand with them and to, to go to bat for them. And we, we met a lot of our Jewish friends at the, the NRB recently at the convention. And it's so wonderful to have these friendships and they're developing and we get to know more about them and them about us. But Jesus is Jewish, so therefore we should love the Jewish people. 
I mean, that's just the basis of it all, but there are, of course, many other reasons to love and support the Jewish people. Not to say we're against others. We're not. We're not against Arabs. We're not against Palestinians. We're, we're against evil. We're against wickedness. We're against training your little children to be terrorists in school. We're against that, obviously. But uh, we are not against other people. We need to love all people, but we're going to especially love the Jewish people. This church is... Uh, this pastor is, and if you're okay with that, we want you to continue coming to this church. If you're not okay with that, then my dad used to say, let your fingers do the walking. That's another obsolete term that you have, some of you young ones have no idea what that means. <laughs> so this Abram is going to bring us the Savior and the Scriptures. He leaves Ur of the Chaldees. Here's a map of the Near East. And those of you listening, it's a little harder, obviously, but I'll try to describe it. Uh, and the map that I'm showing, we can see in the lower left corner, Egypt, the lower right corner, Saudi Arabia, and the upper middle, Turkey, on the, uh, just below that, Syria and Lebanon, to the right of that, Iraq and Iran. That's the, the Near East or Mesopotamia. And this whole area, this whole region here would have been called Mesopotamia or the land of the Chaldees. We don't know exactly where Ur, U-R, is. Uh, some have put it way down, and there is an Ur down closer to where the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers come together. But um, we do know where Haran is. Haran is in Turkey, just above Syria. And we know that that is one of the, the launching points for Abram, Sarai, and Lot, and those that came. They came down into this land of Canaan. We've already gone through that, and that's where they started to live their nomadic life. Uh, so then, <clears throat> when Abram leaves Haran and goes down to Canaan, it's an incredible example of faith, because he believed God, he was looking for a city that man didn't build, he was willing to live in a tent, uh, because he believed God's promise. And it was really an amazing step of faith, an action of faith. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But then he had an episode. He had a moment when there was a famine in the land of Canaan. And he decided, I believe without consulting the Lord, to go down into Egypt to escape the famine. And he did. But there, he lied about Sarai being his wife. And the Pharaoh took her and God gave plagues to the Pharaoh. Does that sound familiar? That's coming up later in the life of Israel, but it's a pre-picture of that. And Pharaoh uh, finds out that Sarah is not just his half-sister, Abram's half-sister, but also his wife. And so he says, get out of here. He had given him all sorts of gifts. And uh, so Abram is heading back up into Canaan and that's where we're going to pick up our story, as this is a, uh, a really interesting a set of events that happen here all in this amazing land called Israel. And I love this place. I was able to interview a woman who is the Midwest director for the Israel Ministry of Tourism. And we heard some good news this week that United Airlines is resuming flights to Tel Aviv. And we're so thankful for that. And that means that things are getting back to normal. And I told her, 
going to this land, this land of Israel, this, this focal point of the world, is one of the most awesome things that I have ever had the opportunity of doing well over 20 times. And I said, it's because of the past. Think about all of the history there, the biblical history. Think of all of the, the present things happening there today. It is a miracle that they even exist as a nation. And think about the future. Think about the future for Israel. So we have the past, present, and future all com- coming together and culminating in this remarkable land. And here again, we're going to find Abram. His late name would be later changed to Abraham here in this land. Now, Abram was a good man, but he was still a sinner, as we saw illustrated last time by not telling the truth. Maybe he didn't expressly lie, but he certainly didn't tell the truth, did he? But we still find in Genesis 15, 6, that he, Abraham, believed This is such an amazing word, an important word. This is the word that we kind of don't really fully understand. He believed in the Lord. What does that mean? That means he believed in the promise. There are many promises in the Bible, but there's one major overarching promise, and that is the promise of salvation, the promise of redemption, the promise of escape from hell to heaven. He believed God. He believed in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord, and it He, God, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. This is important. Abraham had faith in the coming Messiah and was declared righteous by God. And it wasn't by anything he did. It was just by him believing in the Lord. This is what the scripture says. We have faith in the promised one that has come. Salvation is the same for him and for us and for everyone else. Salvation has always been by faith. They believed in the future Christ. That word means Messiah. We believe in the Messiah, the Christ that has come. And just like he was declared righteous by faith in the Lord, he believed the promise of God, so can I, and I have received that that gift that I believed in that promise, And I also have been declared righteous by God. And I hope you have as well. Most of you, I think, have. So let me ask this question. A lot of people think I have to do something to be saved. I have to keep certain rules and certain laws. I have to be good. I have to, uh, our Jewish friends say, I have to keep kosher. Now, kosher has really evolved since what God clearly said. He, He gave some rules to the children of Israel to set them apart. And it was basically just don't eat pork and, you know, don't eat uh, uh, shellfish, you know, just some basic things. But that has really gone into like hyperdrive. And they'll admit that, that they, they've added a lot to what God clearly said. But was Abraham saved because he kept kosher? Let me ask you that question. Was Abraham declared righteous because he kept kosher? Did he keep kosher? He actually didn't because that wasn't given yet. That wasn't given until many generations later. So so Abraham was declared righteous by God before he could keep kosher. Was Abraham declared righteous because he was circumcised? No, because in Genesis 15, circumcision had not yet been given. 
as a sign of God setting apart a nation of people. Plus, we also know that circumcision doesn't save you. It's a, it's a right, it's an act, but it's not salvific. It is not something that will save you. Because Abraham was counted righteous before that was even a thing. Now, did Abraham offer sacrifices to be saved? Now, we know he did offer sacrifices. He did have an altar, and he, altered, he offered sacrifices. So did Abel. So did Noah. Were they saved by those sacrifices? No, because the blood of animals, of bulls and of goats, cannot save you. It is a picture of the coming perfect human sacrifice that can save you. So none of those things saved Abraham. What saved him? Look at Genesis 15, 6. He believed. I mean, that's simple, right? The gospel is in the Hebrew scriptures. So last time we kind of got into this, just for a moment, I want to revisit this. Some of you that are astute Bible scholars, or at least you've been reading your Bible, you know, though, that there's a passage that seems to contradict what Romans says about faith being all that we need for salvation, or what Genesis, what we just read in Genesis, and that's in James. And some people have been very confused by James. So let me just cover this one more time, and then we're getting into the the text today. James 2.21 says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? So we have this word justified. We have works. When he offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Now, let me just explain this. It's it's really pretty simple. When was Abraham saved? When was Abraham declared righteous? Before Isaac was born. If you're looking at Genesis, before Isaac was born, Genesis 15 tells us in verse 6 that Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord counted to Abraham as righteousness. So what does this mean all these years later, now that Isaac's been born, this miracle, this, this son that was promised from God, from Abraham and Sarah, was now born in their old age. Now he is probably 15, 16, muscular, not a little teeny kid. And God says, okay, I want you to sacrifice your son. Well, Abraham knew that God never required human sacrifice. Actually, it was, it was a, bad, a horrible thing that the pagans did. But, it, but Abraham said, I, I faith the Lord, if he makes me go through with this, that the Lord is going to raise him from the dead, because through Isaac was going to come the blessing of the world, the promise, the Messiah. So he went forward. He was ready to bring the knife down. God stopped him. What was God doing? God was showing a future son's sacrifice. The Lamb of God would be Jesus, and God the Father would allow his son to die. So this was a picture of what was coming, a picture of a willing son, a picture of a father that was going to allow his son to die, and by the way, rise again. Incredible imagery. But this happened years and years later, right? So this justification must be different. How do we understand that? Well, we back up a few verses. Always, 
If you're ever confused by a Bible verse, just read a few verses earlier and a few verses later. It should clear it up. Okay? That's why you shouldn't go to a church that opens the Bible, reads one verse, and the, the pastor goes on and on and on and on and on. Because you can build any sermon out of any verse, can't you? But if you're taking the entire scripture together, you can't really do that, can you? So we look in the context to understand this. What, in James 2.14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? So we have these two competing, contradicting things, faith and works. Can faith save him? What are we talking about? Well, first of all, what does this say? My brethren. James is talking to born-again believers. That's the first thing to remember. So he's talking not about salvation. He's talking about what? About service, about uh, being servants of God. Now, is this talking about saved from hell? No, it actually isn't. The next verse says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? What have you done? Have you done anything? If somebody is starving, somebody is needs clothing, and you just say, oh, just go ahead, be warmed and filled, and go on your way. You haven't helped them. What's going to happen to that person? They are going to die. So this, be, this saved in James 2, 14, can faith save him? We're talking about saved in this life, saved physically in this life. This is the importance of works in the life of the people of faith. That's what James is talking about. To believers, the importance of showing our work. Just like declared righteous Abraham was showing his, his faith by being willing to offer Isaac. So should we, as born-again believers, if somebody is destitute, we should help them. Save them. Save their life. Okay, it's really that simple. People just get so confused by James 2 but that's, that's the basics of it. James 2, 7. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. So what does that mean? That means we need to make sure works accompany our faith. How do we do that? By waking up and saying, Lord, use me today. Use me today. What do you want me to do? If the Lord is in heaven at the right hand, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, we are his, his hands, his feet, his 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 mouth, we are here representing him while he's gone. So say, Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to do today? Bring people into my life that I can bless, that I can help, that I can minister to, I can encourage, that I can literally give food to. That is going to be a beautiful picture of something that people can't see, which is faith. That's James. That's James too. Okay? So faith needs to have works to accompany it so that we can evidence our salvation. Now, some people will say, well, in the one of the next verses, actually in, in verse 19, I don't have that, but you can read it later. It says that the devils believe and tremble. So, so it's, you gotta be, you gotta do more than believe. 
No, you don't. You just believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. The Son of God paid for your sins and you're saved. Well, why, why can't the demons be saved? Because they weren't offered salvation. It's like, that, that, it's not talking about demons need to, oh, so if a demon had, if they believed and they had works, then they're saved? No, demons weren't offered salvation. So people just, I don't know why, but, but James really trips people up. Justification here in James is talking about being declared righteous before men. Romans, Genesis is being declared righteous by God, before God. Okay? It's that simple. Now, with all that out of the way as introduction, let me say this to you. Some of you in this room biologically belong to Abraham. And I'm super jealous of that. That you have the lineage, the bloodline of Abraham. And if you have Arab descent or if you have Jewish descent, you are uh, of Abraham. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came the Jews. And the Bible says that we can be spiritual children of Abraham in Galatians 3, 7. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, so these are people that have put their trust, their faith in Jesus, the same are the children of Abraham. So isn't that wonderful to know that? Now, let's talk about Genesis. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It actually is talking about, that's what Genesis means. It's a record of beginnings, beginnings of the world, beginnings of sin, beginnings of the new world after the flood, beginnings of language, beginnings of the story of redemption through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's as if God has taken a video camera and has recorded all of these things for us so that we can know what it was like at the beginning. And that's what we're doing here in Genesis, in our study of Genesis. And so let's look at Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. And Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle in silver and in gold. And he went on his journeys from the south even unto Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. We can also call that Ai. Some of you have called, them, called it that, the town that eventually Joshua conquered when he came into the land years later. So that's where he was pitching his tent once again. Genesis 13, 4 says, Unto the place of the altar which he hath made there at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Let me give you the map one last time to understand that now Abram and his wife had come back up out of Egypt. Now they're in the south, the southern part of Israel. And pretty much if you're in Israel and they say the south, I'm from the south, I, was, I went to the south, it, it literally could be anything south of Jerusalem, all the way down to a lot. That's what is called the south. And then Abram and his wife Sarai came up and pitched their tent once again, as they had when they first came down into Canaan, near Bethel and I, between the two. 
And the Bible gives us a lot of geography. And I love that because when you go to Israel, you can actually see, if you, if you go to Google Earth or Google Maps, and that's what the image that I have, I'm illustrating, when you zoom in, it actually says Bethel today. That's the name of the town, the village there, just north of Jerusalem. And you can find that all over in Israel. These same names are being used all these years later. The Bible includes tons of geographic references, and every one of them is exact. Now, we might not know where certain things are, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but it's incredible how accurate the Bible is. And if we don't understand something, we need to keep thinking about it, studying it, and digging, and eventually we'll figure it out. The Bible is correct, though, every time. Genesis 13, 5, and Lot also which went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. So who is this Lot? Who is this? Well, we remember him. Abram's brother had died, and Abram took his son Lot, Abram, uh, his brother's son Lot, his nephew, with him on this journey. And Lot would have been with him down into Egypt and back up, and they were both prospering, and they were both increasing, and Lot had these same flocks and herds and, and substance. And the land in Genesis thirteen six was not able to bear them that they might dwell together. Okay, they're nomads. They need grazing land. Their flocks are growing. God is prospering them. And now they're starting to have problems. Have any of you ever had family problems? Any of you ever had disagreements within family? It's amazing that we actually go together once a year for a meal with our family. It's amazing that, that we, we actually do that. And then some of you actually have family reunions. We went to one recently with my wife, downstate Illinois. We were so nervous. You know, because you know how it gets, right? People just, they don't like that, or that happened, and they got that from grandma, and I did it. You know, it's crazy, the, the relationship issues that, that are part of our fallen world, Right? So they start to have problems. Their substance was great so that they could not dwell together. This is just life. Things, uh, there's strife. Strife is part of, of life, right? There was strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelt then in the land. So this is, again, reference to the people groups that were there when Abraham arrived. These are people groups, by the way, that are gone they aren't the modern-day Palestinians, the, the Canaanites and the, the Perizzite, which is part of the Canaanite grouping of, of uh, people, which all came from Ham's son, Canaan. Uh, they then dwelt in the land. So you have the, the civilization that lived there, and then you also have Lot and Abram, who were nomads and shepherds, and there was this conflict there. Verse 8, and Abraham said unto Lot, Abram said unto Lot, let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we are brethren. I love the fact that Abram here was godly again. He was godly again. He, this is a godly decision. How do you know if someone's godly or not? Is it, is it based on your religion? Is it based on the, the, the people group that you were born from? 
No, your godliness is basically based on, am I living spiritual right now? In this moment, in this decision. We're all going to come to these major decisions in life. Abram came to one, and he here was godly. He did the right thing. He did the right thing. And so it says, there's this, this strife, there's this problem, and I'm going to give you an offer. It's not the whole land, Genesis 13, 9, before thee. Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right, then I will go to the left. Very generous, isn't it, of Abram here. Very generous. Very amazing thing that he offered. What is a major thing that fractures relationships? The love of money. Don't let that fracture relationships. And I know it's hard because money seems to solve everything, doesn't it? But just be aware of that. The love of money. Money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is. Don't let that destroy your relationships. And here, Abram, the bigger man, the elder, the leader, he gives deference to Lot for the sake of unity. And that's something we all need to think about and learn from. Now here, Lot, I'll tell you how he should have responded. Abram, his uncle, had done quite a bit. He had done a lot for Lot, hadn't he? He had taken him in. He had brought him on this journey. Abraham was being blessed, but, be, but because Lot was near Abraham, Lot was being blessed. So here's what, here's what I think Lot should have said. Lot should have said, no, Uncle Abraham, Thank you for showing such deference, but I, I don't want to choose. I want you to choose. I want you to pick the best for your, for your flocks and for your family. You're the reason that I'm here, Uncle Abraham. You took me in when my dad died. God is prospering you, and I'm just kind of getting some of that overflow. Uh, so I want you to be the one to choose. That would have been a godly response from Lot, but we don't see that right? Whose fault is it? It's always your fault if you don't make godly decisions. Now, last time I said that maybe if Abram hadn't gone down to Egypt, had trusted the Lord in the famine that God would provide, then maybe Lot wouldn't have started to think worldly and, and, and fleshly and carnally. Well, what happened? Genesis thirteen ten. Lot lifted up his eyes. Here's a big problem. Focus in on Lot's eyes. Why is that a problem? Because when we make decisions based on what we can see, we're going to make flawed decisions. Here's what you need to do. You need to stop looking at a situation and start thinking about from the eyes of God, what would he have me to do? If he could, if he could, by looking at the whole thing, if he would give me some advice, what would he do? But when we use our eyes to make our decisions, we're going to make poor decisions. Here's what he did. He lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. And we're going to come back to this word kikar, okay? The word plain in the Hebrew is the word kikar. This is important. I didn't know this until a few years ago. 
I kind of started to understand this. He looked and he saw a beautiful, well-watered area before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So something after God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, something changed in that region. Even as the garden of the Lord, this is how beautiful and well-watered and lush this Kikar of the Jordan, this, this area was. Like the land of Egypt, like the Nile waters Egypt, and it's so green and prosperous, like the garden of, of the Lord, the garden of Eden, as thou comest unto Zoar. Well, Lot chose him the plain, the Kikar of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Lot made a poor decision. This is an image of that part of the world. We have on the bottom left of the screen, Jerusalem. This is modern day. On the right side, in the center of the screen, you have Amman. These two cities actually aren't too far apart. You can see Amman from Jerusalem and Jerusalem from Amman because they're both up in the hills. Between them is a very low place. It's actually the lowest spot on the planet. It's well below sea level. It's the area of the Dead Sea. You can just see in the bottom of this map the northern part of the Dead Sea. And uh, this river is the Jordan. Jordan means descending. So it's the, the descending. All the water, the fresh water comes from the north from Mount Hermon, from other places. It flows down through the Jordan River. Very important geographical place in Israel, and it's still there even to this day. Now, why did I bring up Kikar? Kikar means circle. If you go to Israel, they'll still call something a Kikar. What do they call a Kikar in modern Hebrew, in modern Israel? Traffic circles. Uh, certain types of bread. It's, it's, a, it's a round disc. So when, when this is Bethel today, and I would be right here, so Abraham would have been in the middle, and, and Lot, they were looking, and Lot looked and beheld the well-watered Kikar of Jordan. You have an opening of this valley right here, and it's still some places, Jericho, uh, this, all this area on the, on the Jordanian side is still well-watered. There's water not only from the Jordan, but there's springs coming up from the ground, even today. It's definitely probably much more barren today than it ever was, but that is what, when he says the well-watered plain, He's talking about this, this disc-shaped area right here, Kikar. So they're looking, and they see this, and Lot chooses to go here. Now, we're going to talk about Sodom, right? We're going to talk about Sodom, because it talks about, eventually, Lot going toward Sodom. This is a problem. This is a wicked city. There were cities of the plain, the cities of the Kikar that were wicked at that time. And we'll, we'll discuss that more later. But it was a carnal, fleshly thing for, for Lot to do. And we were able to go to a place in Jordan that they're, they've been doing excavations for a number of years and interview Steve Collins, who's the director of the dig there. It's been in the news that they found Sodom. I'm not convinced, and I want to show you this video to explain why that I'm not positive that this is 
the right place of Sodom, but we do know it was a city and it existed there in Israel. Leaving the hustle and bustle of Amman, we drove southwest to an interesting site called Tel El Hammam. An archaeological dig here has been in the news as a possible location of the destroyed city of Sodom. While intrigued by what I had been reading and hearing, I wanted to talk with the dig director himself. Dr. Stephen Collins is the Dean of the College of Archaeology at Trinity Southwest University in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In my interview on the top of the tell, he gave us the evidence that this might be the infamous city of Sodom. We're at the kind of the pinnacle, the high point yeah. here. You've been here for 16 seasons? Well, we actually started uh, doing the ground research and exploration and surface surveys here in 2001. So we've wow. been here 22 years. Wow, wow. Where was Lot standing when he lifted up his eyes and saw what he's about to see next? He was at Bethel and I. Mm -hmm. He saw that the entire, it's the Hebrew word coal, the entire Kikar circle of the Jordan. Now, sometimes it's translated plain. Right. But it's not a geographical term at all. Okay. Kikar is, it has nothing Kikar to do. is a, it's, what, a circle? It's a circle. And then it says, after he sees this, it says, then Lot traveled forward, huh. eastward, and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. Now, it's called the Kikar of the Jordan. And these are the cities of the Kikar of the Jordan. Talamam is the largest archaeological site, is the largest Bronze Age city in the entire region, not just the Kikar. Okay? So, if the Bible says, which it does, that Sodom is the largest Bronze Age city on the Eastern Jordan disk, then what you would do is go find the largest Bronze Age city on the Eastern Jordan disk. Well, here it is. Okay. We have the big destruction layer here. It was, in fact, the whole area, all the cities of the plain in the Middle Bronze Age, around 1700 BC, were destroyed by a fiery cosmic airburst event out of the sky. Okay, so I think there were other things that, that you found. I mean, when you're, you're looking at what pottery and stuff, you can actually see evidence of that intense heat. We're going to pause it there. The reason is because we're out of time, we're running out of time, but I wanted you to see the site that some feel could be Sodom. There's a big problem, and we explain it in this video. If you want to watch the entire video, it's part of the series Discover Hidden Jordan, which we've already aired, and it's on YouTube. But there's a problem, and that is the dating. This dates later than Abraham, and we have pretty good biblical dates the Bible gives us a lot of detail. Now, for this to work, Dr. Collins and others have to adjust the dates of the, the lengths of life for people like Abraham and Isaac and others. Abraham, the Bible says, lived 205 years. I'm sorry, 175 years. His father lived 205 years and so on. So they have to, they have to say that those are symbolic ages. People that honored them lengthened the life. I don't think we can do that with the Bible. The Bible gives us such exact dates. Something, if this is Sodom and the destruction layer that they say is around 1600 BC is the destruction from God from, that we read about, then there's, there's something wrong with our assumptions in the dating of this place because we would date Abraham much earlier around 2000 BC. So I just wanted to give you that to illustrate the Kikar. 
to, to understand that disc. And then the Bible talks about um, Genesis thirteen twelve. It says, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelled in the cities of the Kikar, the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. This is a progression in Lot's eyes. Eventually, the Bible says that he moved all the way into the city and that he was also part of the governance of Sodom. He, he was in the gate. And the, the, the Bible warns believers about sliding into carnality. Our old nature, even after we're saved, wants to operate by our eyes, by our flesh, by what we can see. The Bible warns us to not do that and, and use the new nature to think spiritually and think of the way God would see these things. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews gives us some good and important warnings about this. It warns us how uh, that, that there's a destructiveness that can come when we start to use our eyes. Hebrews, again, written to believers. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, these things that we're hearing in church from the pulpit, these things that we're reading in our Bible, we should take a more earnest heed. Why? Lest at any time we should let them slip. Anytime I think of this, I think of a anchor slipping with a boat. My wife and I were once renting a houseboat, and uh, it was on a lake in Minnesota that I knew very, very well. Toward evening, I put out an anchor, and I made sure it was really in there good, and we went to bed and went to sleep about in the middle of the night, Karen nudges me and says, Jim, I think we're drifting. I said, honey, 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 you, you know, I know, I know boats. I know a lot. I know anchors. I put it on there. Good. We're, we're probably swinging. We're not drifting. Okay. Probably wasn't okay, but whatever. That was probably what it was. Whatever. So then uh, a few, uh, maybe an hour later, honey, I think, I think we're drifting. It's dark. Like how would she know we're drifting? Honey, go to sleep. So we wake up, first dawn, the light reveals the houseboat is in the middle of this biggest patch of wild rice I've ever seen. And this is a problem. This is a problem, because if you want to start the motor and get the thing out, it's going to get choked up with weeds or wild rice. And uh, she was right. She was right. I don't say that too many times, but she was, she was right. It's a wise thing to say. Don't drift. Don't drift. Be careful about this. When you start drifting, you begin to doubt the word of God. It's this progression. It starts with drifting. It end, it, it continues to doubting the word of God. Take heed in, in Hebrews 3.12. Brethren, lest by any of you an evil heart of unbelief. This is, this is talking to Christians. Departing from the living God. Can you be a Christian and be carnal? Lot is an example of carnality. Born again. How do you know he was born again? Well, I'll explain it in a second. Hold on. So soon, if you let that happen, you're going to start to become dull to the word of God. Hebrews 5.11, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that ye are dull of hearing. You see the progression. This is going to result in you actually despising God's word and then committing sin that you know is wrong, willful sin. And the Bible in the Old Testament says there is no sacrifice for willful sin. 
If you do it and you know it's wrong, you have plenty of light, you know it's wrong, there's no way to restore fellowship. Not salvation, but fellowship. And then in Hebrews 4, uh, 6, 4, it says, it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Ghost. These are saved people. They've got the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, an Arminian will say they've lost salvation, but that's not what this is saying. To renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. It is awful the things that a carnal Christian can do. It's awful. Loss of rewards, loss of testimony, but not loss of salvation. Lot made a lot of bad decisions, didn't he? He was going to have to pay a heavy price. Later on, we're going to learn that he would be taken captive by invading forces. We also know that he would have to flee for his life when God destroyed Sodom. We know that he would lose his wife as part of all of this. He would get drunk and commit incest with both of his daughters. And from those daughters, the offspring would be the Ammonites and the Moabites, two people groups that would be a thorn in Israel's side for years and for centuries. When a Christian sins, bad things come, not just to them, but to others. And it happens for a long time. So that's a warning, Christian. Don't look with your eyes. And you see the progression? He looked with his eyes. He moved down into the Kikar, the plain of Jordan. Then he moved towards Sodom. And then he's living in Sodom. And then he's part of Sodom's government. Carnal Christians don't become carnal how do we know he was saved? 2 Peter 2, 7. And delivered just Lot. That doesn't mean only Lot. Deaconos. Deaconos means righteous. Uh, uh, he, is, he is justified. How could Lot be saved after we just saw all those things that he did? Because he, like his uncle, believed God. He put his faith in the promise of God. But then he was carnal. He used his eyes. He was vexed with the fleshly conversation. That means lifestyle of the wicked. And that's what was going on in Sodom. For that righteous man, he was righteous, declared righteous by God because of his faith, dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Well, don't make a lot of bad decisions. Just rely on the Lord every day that he can help you make godly decisions. That you can see with your eyes. And when you come to that crossroads, that you can think about this biblically and say, Lord, help me. Help me make a good decision here. Don't base your decision by uh, what income you're going to get from that job if you have to move your family to a place that doesn't have a good church. Think about things like that. Think about these bigger issues that are more valuable than money. Don't squabble with your family over these inheritance type of things. Well, they don't deserve it. I deserve it. Maybe you do, but be the bigger person. Be godly in that decision. Don't let that ruin relationships. Don't start that slide. You'll eventually won't believe how far you can go even as a believer, as a Christian. Do you know Jesus Christ as Savior? Have you ever put your faith in him? The Bible says that all of us are sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came and died for sin. He put on himself sin and he was crucified and he rose again and he invites you and me to believe in him, to trust in him. 
Just like Abraham was saved by believing the promise, he didn't have all the details, but he knew God would provide that redeemer. And he put his faith in Christ. So do we. Have you done that? If you haven't done that, do it today. The Bible says that God loved the world. He gave his only son that anyone, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, the hope of salvation.